Spirit of God who inspired David to write this psalm has done several things to make the truth of this psalm clear and plain to our hearts. Beginning with the fact that he inspired David to write the very same words at the beginning and the end of the song. I'm sure you probably noticed that as we were reading that together. Verse 1, and I'm going to ask you again, Will, could you go back to the, uh, to the first screen, the, uh, the, the reading with uh, Psalm 1. Thank you. Verse 1 serves as the introduction that's in red there for you. And verse 9 gives us the conclusion. And we would think that that gives us a pretty good clue what the entire psalm is about. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. It's all about the majesty of God's name. And of course, it's not just a statement of fact. It's an exclamation of praise. When you come face to face with the glory and majesty of God, it is a life-changing experience that moves you to worship. You remember that's certainly what happened to Isaiah the prophet in Isaiah chapter 6. I remember years ago when Stephanie and I first saw the Holiness of God video series by R.C. Sproul. Um, I don't know if I was literally sitting there with my mouth hanging open, but that's what it felt like. And I remember thinking, this is not the same tame, safe God that I was presented with so many times uh, in my early years as a Christian. The God of the Bible, the God that David knew and worshipped, is the God whose glory is above the heavens. And our English translation has broken it down into two sentences, but it's really one sentence. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, who has set your glory above the heavens. There's a contrast here that sets a pattern for the rest of the psalm. Contrast between heaven and earth, between the great and the small. What David is saying here is that the God whose glory is so great that it cannot be contained by the very heavens has condescended to show his majesty here on earth. And we, his creatures, are the beneficiaries of that revelation. Now, the the majestic nature of God's name is important, important enough that it's worth us spending some time to think about what David meant by this phrase. So to help us do that, I want to look at a few passages, just a few other passages that show us this same word in very similar contexts. So first of all, Psalm 76. I'd like for you to turn there if you, if you can. Psalm 76. In Judah, God is known. His name is great in Israel. His abode has been established in Salem, his dwelling place In Zion, there he broke the flashing arrows, the shield, the sword, and the weapons of war. Glorious are you, more majestic than the mountains full of prey. We see there in verse 4, he's using the word majestic to describe something about the nature of God. 
but he uses it in comparison with something else, something in creation that we think of as majestic. It's the mountains, these these huge uprisings of rock and dirt that hold entire forests on their slopes, and the forests are full of wild animals that he mentions. It's this impressive, wild place, not as majestic as God, but you can still see why he uses them for a comparison. But the word is not always translated majestic. Sometimes it's translated as mighty. And so now would you turn to Psalm 93, the 93rd Psalm. And I'll start reading in verse 3. The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their roaring. And here is our word translated majestic in Psalm 8 and Psalm 76, uh, the word mighty. Mightier than the thunders of many waters. Mightier than the waves of the sea. The Lord on high is mighty. So here God's majesty or might is compared with something else in creation. It's the waves of the sea. So I'm not a a surfer. I've only been to the ocean a few times in my life. But I guess I have the idea, uh, um, at least in theory... Uh, Let's say you go out to the beach, you want to catch some good waves, and you paddle out pretty far, and just when things are starting to get pretty intense, all of a sudden this big monster wave comes out of nowhere and towers over you, and you know you are in over your head quite literally. That's the might of the mighty waves, and it serves as a comparison here of the might or the majesty of the Lord on high. Well, there's another place where this word is used to describe both the might of the sea and the might of Yahweh. It's not in the book of Psalms, but it's still a psalm uh, because it was sung by the Israelites by the Red Sea. So let's turn to Exodus 15. Exodus 15. Moses and the people of Israel are celebrating God's victory over the Egyptians. This is what they say in verse 10. You blew with your wind, the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. There's our word, mighty. Imagine what that was like for the Egyptians. These mountains of water start to crash down over their heads. And then Moses and the Israelites use the same word again in the next verse, verse 11. It's no longer the waters that are being called mighty. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness? The might and the majesty of the waters find their source in the might and majesty of Yahweh, who defeats his enemies by his power. So we get a sense how David is using this word. Majestic. It describes something that is imposing and, and awe-inspiring, maybe by its size or its strength or its appearance. If you stand in front of it or underneath it, just looking at it, you can't help but be impressed. So David is singing and celebrating this awe-inspiring, worship-producing quality of God's name or God's self-revelation. 
The question is, at least in this psalm, how does God reveal his majesty and greatness? I think it's important for us to see David is not changing the subject when he moves to verse 2. He's not writing just about a couple of random things that happen to come to his mind and then reverting back to the original subject in verse 9. The whole psalm is meant to develop this theme of God's majestic revelation of himself in all the earth. But David develops the theme by taking us in a direction that's probably not what we expected. It kind of catches us off guard because what he's going to do is describe and meditate on God's, on God's majesty by observing two paradoxes. The first one in verse 2 and the second one in verses 3 through 8. So let's look at the first paradox in verse 2. This is the first paradox. God chooses little children to silence his enemies. God uses little children to silence his enemies. There's an intentional contrast here between babies and infants versus the enemy and the avenger. Now, he doesn't go into detail who these foes and enemies are, but they certainly don't sound like a very pleasant bunch. We would assume they're kind of mean and scary. And the point is, you would not expect a military commander or strategist to use little kids to go against them if you want to defeat them in battle. It's incongruous. It doesn't fit. You might say it's a little bit like picking a, uh, a middle-aged, out-of-shape white guy like me, drafting him to play in the NBA, and expecting him to guard LeBron James. If you can pull that off, you've done something pretty amazing. And that's exactly the point. God has done something amazing by defeating his foes with the weakest and most helpless of human vessels. And if you think about it, that's a message that shows up all over the Bible, doesn't it? Think about Gideon, his band of 300 men fighting against the army of the Midianites. Think about David going against Goliath. It's an idea that Paul brings to our attention in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. Even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Now, of course, this psalm finds a very specific fulfillment in the last week of Jesus' public ministry. Matthew 21, Jesus rides into Jerusalem. He goes into the temple where he is healing the blind and the lame. And the little children are crying out, Hosanna to the son of David. And remember, the priests and scribes are offended. Jesus don't you hear what these little kids are saying? They're going too far. Can't you make them be quiet? And Jesus says, no, they're fulfilling God's word. They're saying exactly what they're supposed to say. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies? You have prepared praise. 
The religious leaders were trying to make the children be quiet, but in reality, they were the ones who were going to be put to silence. They thought of themselves as the spiritual elite, the cream of the crop of God's chosen people. They were going to bring God's justification and blessing to the nation by their scrupulous observance and rigorous enforcement of God's law. But Jesus says, no, you're actually revealing yourselves to be the foes, the enemy and the avenger that Psalm 8 verse 2 talks about. It's a, of course, it's a stinging rebuke of those who oppose Jesus. And even more than that, it shows us what kind of claim Jesus was making about himself. So do not miss the implication of what Jesus is saying. Remember, Psalm 8 is a hymn of praise to Yahweh, the God of Israel. When Jesus quotes from that psalm and applies it to himself and the little children praising him in the temple, he is saying that the praise offered to God by little children properly belongs to him. If Jesus was only a man, if he is only a prophet or a good teacher, this is blasphemous insanity. No one else gets to say, yes, the praise that belongs to God is really fulfilled and finds its true meaning when it's offered to me. But Jesus says that about himself because that's who he is. He's the eternal son of God in perfect union with the father. He is the God whose majesty fills the earth and whose glory is above the heavens. So God uses the weakness of little children to declare his praise, to silence his enemies, and to reveal the identity of his son. That's what's included in the first paradox paradox there in verse 2 and its New Testament fulfillment. But let's take a look now at the second paradox, which we find in verses 3 through 8, and that's uh, on the screen in blue. This one is, this paradox is built on a contrast as well. It's the contrast between the vast starry sky with all its amazing wonders like the moon and the Milky Way and all of the various constellations and then human beings who look so weak and small by comparison. That contrast highlights the sense of wonder that David experienced When he considered the amazing honor that God has given to mankind by making him ruler over his creation. He actually puts it in the form of a question like he can't quite fathom why God would do this. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Man is a weak, changeable creature formed from the dust. How is it that God would even pay attention to us? much less bestow on us this incredible honor and privilege. And this is what David meditates on and expresses with very poetic language, basically for the rest of the psalm. God has created a kingdom, and he has appointed man to be king over that kingdom. Man wears a crown of glory and honor. He exercises dominion over the entire realm. Notice how expansive and inclusive the language is. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen. 
the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. And of course, the language and the categories are borrowed from Genesis chapter 1, the account of creation. So we need to recognize something that puts this psalm in its proper context. David is describing man as he was created to fulfill his original purpose, not as he presently functions in a world that is under God's curse. Now, why do I say that? Well, man's ability to rule and exercise dominion over the earth and over the animals is directly tied to the fact he is created in the image of God. Adam and Eve were created to serve as a reflection of God's kingly authority by exercising the kingly authority that was granted to them. But when Adam chose the wisdom of the serpent instead of the wisdom of God, that image was defaced. It was corrupted. It's not that God's image has been completely removed. It's more like a beautiful portrait that's been torn into pieces. And you can still make out parts of the original beauty and design. You pick up a piece and, yeah, I see something, what it was like. But it's damaged. It's distorted. It's deformed. And that impacts the way man rules over creation. Sure, we raise cattle and other livestock for our own benefit. We grow crops in the field and we dig minerals from the earth to build automobiles and computers and all kinds of helpful devices. But all those endeavors are not only tainted by sin, they are marked by a futility that comes from knowing no matter how hard we work to make our environment more pleasing and comfortable, no matter how much we try to ease human suffering and prolong human life, Eventually, bacteria and decay and the harsh rigors of our environment have their way with us, and we return to the dust from which we were made. And the reality of death proves we are not able to successfully fulfill the creation mandate. Instead of subduing creation, creation subdues us. That's the reality that shapes all human history. Not only because everyone dies and their earthly hopes and aspirations come to an end, but because death reaches into the present and it colors every area of our lives with its dark shades. And it robs men and women of their dignity and their peace and their sense of fulfillment It's not the way it was supposed to be. It's not the way it was originally designed. And it's not, you notice, it's not the perspective of David here in Psalm 8. It's more like the perspective of Ecclesiastes. So how is it? Why is David so joyful and optimistic in this psalm? Well, I'm glad you asked because there's a great answer. And it comes to us from Hebrews chapter 2. Remember I said at the very beginning, the Holy Spirit has done several things to make clear the meaning of this psalm. 
And here is the most important and decisive thing. Can we get Hebrews 2 on the screen, please, uh, Will? Thanks. So here's the most important and decisive thing that the Holy Spirit has done. He inspired the author of Hebrews to interpret Psalm 8 for us. Hebrews 2 gives us authoritative guidance and resolution for a number of problems or questions that might occur to us that we might encounter when we read Psalm 8. I've already introduced one question. How can David sing about man's dominion over creation with such glowing and expansive terms when that seems to be contradicted by human experience? Yes, man was created for that kind of greatness, but hasn't that been lost? And the answer is found in the one who restores humanity to their original exalted status by representing them as the new Adam. Verse 9, the one who for a little while was made lower than the angels, but is now crowned with glory and honor, is namely Jesus. Jesus restores what Adam lost our right relationship with God, and as a consequence, our right relationship with the rest of creation. So just think of some of the evidence from the life of Jesus that shows his absolute authority and dominion over all the created animals. We already referred to the passage about the triumphal entry. Jesus chooses a donkey foal that's never been tamed, sits on it as if Rides it into Jerusalem as if that's what the donkey was was born to do. Because it was. Jesus exercising his authority over the livestock and the beasts of the field. When Jesus tells fish to jump into Peter's net. That's where they go. When he tells one fish to swallow a shekel. And then bite Peter's fish hook at just the right time. So Peter can take the coin out of his mouth and pay the temple tax. That's what it does. That's the Son of Man exercising dominion over the fish of the sea. And that's just a foretaste of the kingly authority Jesus will display when he restores creation and makes all things new. And that's another question that is answered in this portion of Hebrews. When will this full subjection of creation be realized? He tells us in verse 8, At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. In this present evil age, we still see mankind in rebellion against God's anointed king. And we see the effects of mankind's rebellion in the created order. Romans 8 tells us that creation is subjected to futility. And it longs for the day when it will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. That's the glory of what our passage in Hebrews, verse 5, calls the world to come. In fact, the book of Hebrews draws from passages like Psalm 8, Psalm 2, Psalm 110, actually passages throughout the entire Old Testament to teach us That the old order is passing away, and in its place, God is going to establish a heavenly kingdom that cannot be shaken. And according to Hebrews 12, that should make us grateful. And that should lead us to offer to God acceptable worship 
with reverence and awe. Now, there's one other theme in Hebrews 2 that is not only central to the whole book of Hebrews. It answers what is perhaps the most important question we can bring to Psalm 8. And that is, how is all this accomplished? How does the Son of Man gain such glory and honor and restore the race that he represents to the exalted status that they lost in Adam? Well, the end of verse 9 tells us the answer. It was because of the suffering of death. The one whose glory was above the heavens became for a little while lower than the angels that he might taste death for everyone. And that is how we see the full expression of what David celebrates in Psalm 8. The God whose glory is above the heavens has condescended to show his majesty on earth. How? Through weakness. And nowhere does the majesty of God take on such apparent weakness as at the cross. What do we see when we look at the cross? Well, the world sees a poor Jewish rabbi betrayed by one of his own followers, abandoned by his closest friends, stripped and beaten by the Roman authorities, condemned by the rulers of this age, and crucified like a common criminal. It's not very impressive. He certainly doesn't look like the Lord of glory. But this is the one who just a few hours before his death prayed, Father, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. David says, your name is majestic in all the earth. Jesus said, I have manifested that name. The true and full expression of the majesty of God's name can only be seen in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Psalm 8 shows us how to embrace the majesty of of God's name, not just with our intellectual assent, but with worship and delight. When we grasp the true Christ-centered focus of this psalm, it does several things for us. It increases our gratitude to Christ, and it gives us hope for a broken world. When a loved one loses her battle with cancer, when your children are disobedient and rebellious, when the bad guys always seem to win and the good guys always seem to lose, when you don't know what to do next because everything you tried seems to go nowhere and God doesn't seem that interested in answering your prayers, your hope is not found in the circumstances of this world. It is found in the world to come, in a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And the glory of that kingdom and the humble majesty of that kingdom's king is what draws your affections and reshapes your priorities.
The blessings of this life can be good gifts that God gives us to enjoy, but they're not a secure enough investment to set your hopes on, and they're not worth enough to cling to too tightly. The most solid investment that you can make, the firmest hope that you can find, the richest treasure that you can gain, is in knowing the humble majesty of God revealed in Jesus Christ. I hope you treasure these words in light of their fulfillment in Christ. I want to ask you to think about them and rehearse them to yourself throughout the week. To help us do that, I want us to read one more time out loud together God's word from the screen. Would you read with me? O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let's give thanks to God. Dale, would you come lead us in prayer?